So just last week, we embarked into a new adventure, and we're calling it Practices. I had a great time this week working through this journal. This journal is available. Some of you jumped into it. Some of you have intentions to. So please feel, just feel welcome to jump in. These are available at our Welcome Center. And here, here's why we're doing this. We believe that there's a clear mandate from the Bible regarding what we're supposed to be doing collectively and individually. And that is this, to become disciples of Jesus. So when Jesus interacted with people, he wanted to take them beyond this acknowledgement or this belief that he existed. So many, 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 many people believe, yeah, Jesus probably existed. I believe there's a God. Maybe they're unresolved about who God is. That's some of us in the room. What Jesus said is, I want to take you beyond that, and I want you to become my disciple. Now, we don't use that word very often, but in the first century when Jesus lived, this is how you would learn. If you wanted to progress in your learning, they didn't have colleges and universities. They had teachers, and a teacher was called a rabbi, a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi, and here's what the rabbi did. The rabbi would call disciples to follow. And then your job as a disciple was to, for years, to follow your rabbi. And through time, through experience, through practice, through listening, to absorb everything that you possibly could from your teacher, from your rabbi. And eventually, you talked like your rabbi, you valued what your rabbi valued, you became like your rabbi. And so when Jesus invites people into relationship, he doesn't just say, hey, come and believe. He says, come and follow me, be my disciple. So we're always trying to learn. What does that mean and how do I become a disciple? So one of these things that we're doing, one of the things that we're doing for that is going through these practices. It's eight weeks that will help all of us. Maybe you're brand new. You're not even sure what you believe. Maybe you're this seasoned veteran, but we're all becoming disciples. And this week in particular, we're going to talk about one spiritual practice called prayer. All right, prayer. Now, even when I say prayer, some of us feel like, oh, no. And here's why. Because I bet the majority of people, when I say the word prayer, we feel a sense of guilt. Because we don't know if we pray right. We probably don't pray enough. We feel like our prayers are awkward. Anybody in the room say, you know what my problem is, Nate? is I prayed entirely too much this week. Anybody? No, I can't raise my hand. Most of us don't feel like, oh yeah, this is one that I've got down. In fact, we feel a little insecure when it comes to prayer. We wonder, are we doing it right? And why don't we do it more? And we have great intentions, but it doesn't always happen. And then we feel really guilty because the only times we pray are when we're in trouble. Anybody ever have that? My tire's flat. Dear God, I know I haven't talked to you in a long time, but do a miracle. Put air in this thing, please. I need you. I don't even know if that's a bad thing. Jenny and I have two adult children now. We have two at home and two out of the home. And you know, now that they're adults, they don't need us a lot and they don't call us very often. In fact, early this morning before I was awake, my daughter who lives on the other side of the globe called and I knew she needed something, right? That's why she's calling. So I picked up the phone and she's like, dad, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time to talk. How are you? She didn't even wait for me to say how I was doing. She goes, I need, and she gave me her need. You know what? I did not go, hey, call me back when you have time for me. Why do you only call me when you need something? 
I'm happy to hear from the girl. I'm like, good to hear your voice. Here's the answer to your question. Okay, I got to go. I think God's always happy to hear from you. Even if you're only calling when you need. So sometimes in prayer we feel a little bit of shame. Anybody ever fallen asleep when they're praying? Okay, it's happened to me right here in this chair. You come into this room on a Monday morning, the lights are off. And you have, I have had great intentions, like I am going to pray. And it's dark and you wake up and there's a little bit of drool on that chair. <laughs> and you're not sure if you've been sleeping for 30 seconds or three hours. You're like, oh my, oh, where am I? What's happening? I have a friend, his name's Tim Clevenger. Um, and Tim's just one of those put together guys. You know, he's a successful businessman. And years ago, he began to become a follower of Jesus. And people were surprised. And, you know, he got religion, is what his friends said. So he had this um, evening event. It was a dinner event. And because Tim was now religious, they asked him to do the evening prayer, to open up the whole uh, dinner event and evening prayer. And he was so nervous. He was just terrified. He never prayed out loud. And what do I do? So he practiced. Tim practiced this prayer. He wrote it out. He would say it over and over. I mean, he was really worked up. He wanted to do a good job. And so he gets up there. It's an evening event. Dinner's happening. He's supposed to open in prayer, pray for the food. And he starts off this way. Lord, this morning. Okay, it's an evening event. And he's practiced so much. And the next thing he does is he says, oh, expletive, into the microphone. Because he just said morning when he meant evening. You just, he just kept digging that hole deeper. Like, my first public prayer and my third word was a swear word. Like, oh... Like, he just felt so terrible about this. And the whole room's laughing now, right? It's the whole room's laughing. I think we've all had those experiences. We wonder, where am I at in my prayer? But prayer, if I could say one thing, it's communication with God. For any relationship to develop, what do you have to have? You have to have communication. And that's why I think it's an essential part of discipleship, of becoming a follower is I've got to be hearing and I've got to be speaking to God in order for my relationship with him to grow. And so how do we get past our feelings of complacency or our feelings of, of guilt when it comes to prayer? How do we move forward? In Luke chapter 11, this is what we're going to read. There are these disciples of Jesus that have been following him for about two years at this point. And here's what they would have been as Hebrew disciples, Hebrew people. It's from when they were six years old. Okay, six years old, they would have begun their religious education. And it was very, very thorough. And as a, a young Hebrew, you would have learned how to pray. You would have learned the traditions of prayer. In fact, you would have prayed three times a day. And you would have learned to memorize lengthy prayers. Many times there are quotations from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament or from the book of Isaiah. And you, you learn these by heart because paper wasn't available. And then there's a whole process to praying. So here's these disciples that have spent years of their life learning how to formally pray to God. And here's what they notice: Their rabbi, their teacher, prays very differently than they pray. 
it's a radical departure from what they've learned. And so they ask this question, Lord, could you, could you teach us to pray? Now, before we read the text, I want to show you a picture because this will help us to understand a little bit of the context because we're going to miss it. We're 2,000 years later. Most of us aren't terribly familiar with Hebrew culture, and so we don't even understand the question they're asking. Here's a picture. This is a modern-day picture. I'm going to put it up on the big screens as well. Although this is a modern picture, things have not changed for a traditional Jewish person in the last 2,000 years. So in this picture, you have a group of people who are all praying. And there's some unique things about this. First of all, some of you, the first thing you had is like, why are they dressed up as unicorns? Okay, this is a very ancient form of prayer. These are called, it's a confusing word, phylacteries. Phylacteries. So on their head, but then you'll also notice on their left arms are this leather wrappings. And inside of these boxes, you'd have one on your hand and one on your forehead, are some of the fundamental verses from the Hebrew Bible. For example, on your head, often you would wear something from Deuteronomy chapter 6, written on a small piece of paper, rolled up and worn in this box. Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema in Hebrew, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength. And so you would wear these scriptures to help govern you. This is on my mind. This is on my hand. My handiwork is about this. And so before praying, you would put on these phylacteries. You'll notice on the heads of each one of these men is what we call a yarmulke. That's a a Yiddish word. It's a kippah in Hebrew. And you, you you didn't ever approach God without this. It was a sign of humility that I'm under your covering. It's inappropriate to even pray for a Hebrew person without a yarmulke. And you'll notice this prayer book where he's reading things, and this is what we do now because paper is available. But in the ancient world, Jesus' disciples, they would have had to have all these memorized because paper was far too expensive. So all of these prayers, this is at sunset. So Hebrews would pray three times a day, and they still do to this point, sunrise, midday, and at twilight. And so these prayers were prayed, different prayers for each time of the day. The prayers were very structured. You'll notice on the shoulders of each of these men is a prayer shawl known as a talit. And you would never pray without a prayer shawl. It was symbolic that you're coming under the covering of God. And even the hems and the design had symbols and helped you walk through your prayers. So this is, this is what Jesus' disciples had learned. This is how you pray. In fact... For your prayers to have the highest effect, you needed to have a quorum of 10 Hebrew men. You could pray individually, but if you had 10 people there, there was this belief that those were the prayers that were most potent. So this this is how Jesus' disciples learned to pray. This is what they wore. These are the prayers that they spoke. It's been going on for 2,000 years. But as they observed Jesus, their teacher, for a couple of years, they realized that Jesus is praying in a very different fashion than we are. Let's read together from Luke chapter 11. We'll begin at the very beginning of the chapter. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, John the Baptist, taught his disciples. We, 
we want to learn something because we're realizing we've been trained in prayer, but how you pray is different and it seems to have a different ethos. It seems to have different impact. We want to learn and pray like you are. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. So there, there's the prayer. Some of you, you think, well, that sounds a little different than how I learned it. We usually memorize this, if you've memorized it, from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew has a little bit different version. And Jesus says, here's, here's some words, here's some structure. And then continuing to answer their question, teach us how to pray, Jesus says this. Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity. Okay, it's midnight. Your audacity to even go to the door, your, your, your boldness to knock, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, which of you, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? So if your kid was hungry, and they came and said, could you give me something to eat? Would you give them something venomous and dangerous? Would you do that? Says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? It doesn't say like Mercedes Benz and, you know. He'll give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, exclamation mark. If you and I were a disciple in the first century and we had just asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, I think we would be more surprised by what Jesus didn't say than what he did say. Do you notice this? Jesus didn't mention time frames. He didn't mention you have to pray. They're accustomed to praying a minimum of three times a day. He doesn't mention how many times a day you pray. He doesn't mention how long your prayers need to be. He doesn't mention what you need to wear when you pray. He doesn't talk about all these deep traditions that were ensconced into these young men. He gives them a whole different perspective entirely. So what do we learn from this? It's almost as if Jesus is doing some deconstructionism as he teaches them. Here's the first thing. Wherever you're at in your own spiritual journey, I think this, this is true for all of us. Number one, know this. Prayer is a learned behavior. Okay, prayer is a learned behavior. I don't think anyone starts off 
as like, oh yeah, first time I did it, I, I nailed it. No. Prayer is something that over years you would learn how to do. Last week, one of our premises is this, is when it comes to spiritual practice, when it comes to being a disciple, we're thinking training, not trying. Okay, trying says this, well, I tried to pray, but I fell asleep. I failed. I'm done. No, no, we're, we're training how to do this. So I'm learning step by step by step. So prayer is a learned behavior for you, for me. If you don't feel confident in your prayers, that's a great place to be. But here's the question. Here's the best question that anybody can ask when it comes to prayer. Lord, could you teach me how to pray? Would you be willing to help me with this? Because sometimes I feel like I'm just speaking words into a great emptiness. Sometimes I feel un unqualified to pray. I, I know what's happened in my week, and I, I just think, I, I can't go before God right now. Sometimes I feel too busy. Sometimes I, I, I think I'm really selfish. I'm just talking about myself. So, Lord, would you teach me how to pray? I love this. I, I just tried to mention this every day this week. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I sat down with my journal, I, I thought, God, I've been at this for a while, but would you teach me how to pray? I think it's a, it's a learned behavior, and I've got a long ways to go. And I want to increase. I, I want to I connect with you in ways I've never connected. I, I don't want to be content. I, I don't want to say, oh, yeah, I figured this out. Lord, would you teach me how to pray? He loved to teach us how to pray. That's how he answers our prayer request. So there's a couple of things about this learned behavior that just strike me. One is this, when you read the Lord's Prayer, there's this authenticity to it. It's not flamboyant and it's not filled with these, you know, religious words. Have you ever been praying and, and like the person who prays before you, it, it seems like they've memorized Hebrew because they're like, oh dear God, heaven, the earth, king almighty. And, and you're like, I don't have that many ways to address God. Like I've got one, Lord, Right. There's this authenticity, and there are other places in the New Testament where Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not impressed by how flowery or ornate your prayers are. What I'm looking for is authenticity. And this model prayer that he gives us is just, it's just from the heart. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this, lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. I, I, I think there's this challenge that when I come to pray, I, I think, well, I ought to do this. I feel like I should be. I need to measure up. And so we come before him trying to be something that we're currently not. Come before him as authentic as possible. Say, God, I, I really don't know how to pray, but I want to be a follower of Jesus. And this is one of the practices that will help me. So here I am. This is... This is the rawness of who I am. Psalms, these ancient, ancient prayers in the Old Testament, some of them are just painfully raw and authentic. It's David saying, you know what? I just about given up on you, God. I'm so mad. I'm frustrated. It seems like I do everything right and it doesn't go my way. And I see these people and they do everything wrong. And it seems like their lives are happy. And David's just, it's kind of like 
here it is, God. This is who I am. This is how I'm feeling. Authenticity. And then here's, here's another thing about this, this learning to pray is there's brevity there. I think we can get rid of that sense of a guilt that I don't pray enough. You can go through the Lord's Prayer in just moments. Moments. I wonder if it might be more important to, in life to pray often and to pray longer. Now, there are some people in this room, you are my heroes. You guys pray for hours and hours every week. And one day, I'm going to work up to that. I'm training towards that. But currently, I have what I call spiritual attention deficit disorder. Does anybody else have that? Spiritual attention deficit disorder. I don't know why this works. Like, this has been a problem for me for my whole life. I haven't even seen these two TV shows in like 30 years. But I can start praying, and all of a sudden what comes to mind is an episode of Gilligan's Island or Magnum P.I. I don't know why it's two, those two shows, but I, like I'm praying, and I'm focused, and suddenly I'm like, Skipper. <laughs> I'm like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? So here's what I do because I have spiritual attention deficit disorder is I always bring a pen and a notebook when I pray. Because things come to mind like, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that. And if I can just write them down, write them down, write them down, I can go back to praying. I know it's going to be there when I'm done. Or if something comes to mind that's bizarre like that, okay, Lord, I'm just going to pray for Gilligan for a second. I'm not sure why, but he's in my mind. Okay, now, I know what, maybe you want me to pray for Hollywood. I'm going to pray for Hollywood, Lord. I'm going to pray. If I'm sitting there praying and I'm like, all of a sudden I'm starting to think about politics and my teeth are grinding. Okay, rather than like, what's wrong with me? Like, okay, Lord, I want to pray for the leaders and the people in authority here in our world. I'm going to pray that you would guide them and direct them. Sometimes just going with where your mind is isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. So there's a brevity there. There's an authenticity. Prayer is a learned behavior. Now, here's the second thing I'd like to talk about. It's this pattern for prayer. So we need to ask ourselves, so when Jesus gives this prayer, is this some sort of, you know, like holy and sacred prayer? And I don't think it's bad to repeat the Lord's Prayer. I think that's a beautiful thing. But it seems that Jesus is asking the question, he's answering the question, how to pray. And so what Jesus is giving is a pattern, more than one prayer that you need to pray all the time. He's giving this beautiful pattern. It's an outline for his disciples to follow. So what's involved in this pattern of prayer? Notice this. It begins with him. Start with him. So, oftentimes when we pray, how does it begin? God, I, Lord, me, it begins with me. This is a biblical principle. Okay? A biblical principle. It's called worship. It's called adoration. All these different things. Is that when I come before God, I am going to choose to begin with him. Not with me. I'll get to that. That's the second part of this pattern of prayer. But it begins this way. Father. Father. How many different phrases could Jesus have said, use this phrase when you address God? Uh, magnificent one, creator, sustainer, glorious one, holy one. All these kind of beautiful religious phrases. But Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to begin with him. And I want you to declare that he is your father. Now, I know a lot of us in the room, we have painful experiences with our earthly fathers. I understand that. I acknowledge that. But maybe the healthiest thing that you can do 
is to say, you're the one who gave me life. And if you're my father, that means I'm your child. And when I am coming to God, and I'm coming to God not as a pleading beggar, but I am coming to God as his daughter or his son, that changes everything. Any if your grandparents, aunt, uncles, you've, you've, you've seen kids raised. A child who's comfortable with their father comes in and says, Mom, Dad, would it be okay if I, could I please? They're not scared of rejection. They're not scared of being, uh, experiencing punitive retribution. Like, how dare you ask me that? Start with God. You're my father. That means I'm your child. And you're in heaven. Meaning, I am not God. God is not in me. God is not in the tree and the bush and the earth. No, you are wholly other than. There's this beautiful idea that he's transcendent, that he's beyond us. That God, you are the one who oversees this world. You're not stuck in the midst of it. Our Father who is in heaven. And then this interesting word, hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Holy. Reverence. It's interesting because Father and then Hollywood, it's a combination of, of reverence and relationship. God, you're not like me. You're perfect. And when I come before you, when I realize that you're magnificent and that there is no mistake, there's no sin, there's no flaw in you, holy be your name. And, and then Jesus moves on. He says, and then start talking about his kingdom. Your kingdom come into, into my world. So this is a little bit challenging for us because we haven't ever lived in a monarchy here in the United States. But throughout human history, monarchies were typical. There was a king and there was a queen. The king and the queen had ultimate power. They set the agenda. They determined the values. And it's this invitation saying, God, I'm beginning with you. I want, I want you to be king of my life. I want you to have the ultimate place of authority. Would your kingdom, would it come into my heart, my life, my, my, my relationships, my workplace, even into this world where I'm not in charge? I relinquish the throne to you, to you. I grew up in rural Colorado. We lived at a high elevation. We were about 7,200 feet. So we get a lot of snow. And in elementary school, they just keep piling the snow up. And as you got to about this point in winter, there were these massive, probably, I don't know, 14, 15 foot piles of snow. And I don't think they allow kids to do this anymore. But we spent every recess playing King of the Mountain. Okay, and this is why they don't allow you to do this because the point is, is to be on top and to throw everybody else off, right? And I, I loved this game. This was just like right up my alley. And, you know, there was strategy and there was technique to it. And part of my strategy and technique is I had an arch nemesis in fifth grade. His name was Brad Sayer. Oh, man. I don't remember my teacher's name. I just remember this kid's name, Brad Sayer. And, like, we were always vying for King of the Mountain. But I realized, like, the point was, is you want to be on top of the mountain when the bell rang and recess was over. 
because that meant you were the champ. So I figured out, like, there's no sense in getting up there at the beginning because they're all going to come and get you off. So you just wait, and, and you're like, okay, I think there's about four minutes of recess. It's time for me to go. I'm going after Brad Sayer. And this one fine day in fifth grade, I grab him, and it was just, it was classic. I grabbed him by the back of his jacket and his belt, and I just tossed him. I'm king of the mountain, right? I've got my hands raised. And what I didn't know is Brad Sayer's girlfriend, and I still remember her name, and you'll know why in a second, Holly Kotke, had snuck up the mountain behind me, and she taps me on the shoulder, and I turn, and I turn into like a roundhouse punch that just catches the end of my nose. You ever notice my nose is crooked? This is when it began. Okay. She just, she breaks my nose. Do you know, do you know what it's like to have your nose broken by a girl when you're in fifth grade? I'm just, I'm bleeding all over the mountain, right? And, and you, it just, like, that's one of the things in high school. They're like, oh, there's Holly, Nate, watch out. I'm like, stop it, guys. Leave it alone. I'm scared to ever go back for a reunion because I know what's going to happen. Like, oh, remember when you had your nose broken? The point of King of the Mountain is that you put yourself on top, right? This idea of your kingdom come is the exact opposite. That I stand at the bottom of the mountain and I say, God, would your kingdom be in my life? Would you be enthroned? And here's my job. All the things that want to take your place, my job is to pull them down. So if my career, if it's becoming more important than you, I I pull it down. If my dreams and my wants, if my pride and my ego, my job is to keep everything down so that you are king. So you start with God. And then in this pattern of prayer, you go from God to us. Jesus says, and now I, I, I want you to begin to pray this pattern of prayer regarding yourself. But you started with God. And as we move through this prayer with ourself, It's daily bread. Lord, would you give us today the essential things that are needed? See, our prayers are often filled with our wants and our desires, aren't they? But Jesus says, when you pray, pray for sustenance for the day. Why just for the day? Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have grocery stores. It was every day you're looking for food. And and Jesus says this, Train yourself to be dependent on me. God, would you give me enough for today? And it's not just physical nourishment, but God, would you give me enough patience for today? Would you give me enough courage for today? Would you give me hope for the day? That God, what I need from you are the essentials. I'm going to trust you for those things. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he moves away from the physical realities of people. He says, and would you forgive us and would you help us to forgive other people? It's acknowledging that we're imperfect, broken people. Here's the problem with us. I'm offended and I'm offensive. I'm offensive to the people around me. And I'm offensive to God at times. I choose my own ways. I act out of instinct rather than this new spirit that he's given us. And there's something about the essentials 
of just clearing everything out every day. Everybody, if you live in an apartment or a house, you have garbage cans, right? You have to have garbage cans. If you don't, if you just like throw your trash on the ground, they make a Discovery Channel show about you. It's, it's weird. It's unhealthy. Every day, our kitchen garbage has to be taken out. Why? Because it just gets filled up. And if you leave it there for a while, it's going to overflow. And you leave it there any longer, it's going to start to stink. Like God is just saying this. Jesus says, every day, would you, would you come before your father and would you just pray, God, I'm terribly imperfect and I need your forgiveness. Here's some things I know that I wish I could have them over again, but I didn't do this the way I wanted to do it. Would you change my heart? And then there's another part to this. God, would you help me to forgive? Oh, because when I hold on to things, they become toxic and putrid and they begin to influence my life. And you, you all know how it is when you've been hurt, when you've experienced trauma. It doesn't happen overnight. But if I can constantly be saying, God, I give this to you. Help me to be a forgiving person. Slowly but surely that toxin works its way out of my life. Forgive us and help us to forgive. Then he says, pray this. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me not to temptation. And I know we read that and it kind of seems like, wow, is God really going to do that? Is he really going to? It's more of a phrase of, God, would you protect me? God, here's what I'm saying is I know that throughout the day, I'm going to be going to places and I don't have the discernment. I don't have the capacity to see what my choices might bring. And so as I'm going through life, rather than find myself in a compromising position, would you correct me so that I avoid these potential traps? Because I'm weak. It's an acknowledgement that, that I'm weak and I'm vulnerable. Now, I can make a mistake in a drop of a hat. So, God, would you lead me away from temptation? I give you control to guide my life. Would you show me each step along the way? So it's a pattern for prayer. And then lastly, I, I just want to quickly cover those final verses that we read where he talks about if you have a friend that came over in the middle of the night and you didn't have anything to feed them, you'd go to your neighbor and, and you just bang on that door and they'd eventually give you food. Or if, if a child asks for something, wouldn't you give them the right thing? What, why is Jesus, why does he add that into his answer? Cause he already gave him a pattern. Here's what he's telling them. If your perspective on God is this, is that he is stingy and he is unkind and he is just waiting. He's just waiting to correct you. He's waiting to frustrate you. He's perpetually disappointed in you. That's going to taint how you pray. You're going to be a beggar. God, please, let's pray. Please forgive me again. He says, pray as if you're a child of God. If you would never give your child something that would be harmful to them, just know this, your God in heaven is perfect and he's loving. So here's what I want you to do. Rather than beg before God, come before him with this confidence that he is good and he is kind and he is loving. And when I knock, he answers. And when I ask, he responds. And when I seek, he'll help me to find. That it's not me like trying to manipulate my prayers and make everything perfect. Get rid of all those fears, he says. 
God loves you. And if I, I can enter into a moment of prayer thinking, God loves me, it changes everything. My approach before him then is, God, I don't know why, but you love me, and I really believe that. And so here's my heart before you. I can pray authentically. Because the point is this, I'm trying to connect with my creator. I want to close with just this quotation from Dallas Willard. Prayer is talking with God about what we are doing together. It becomes so complicated, but this word together. God, what are we doing together? I want to talk to you. I want this to be a dialogue, not just a monologue. I'm attempting to connect with my teacher, with my rabbi. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would have a new confidence as they pray. We ask the same question that your disciples asked. Could you teach us to pray? Because we're not experts. We have so much to learn. We have misconceptions. We have traditions. Would you teach us what it means to pray? God, I pray that this adventure would begin anew for all of us. Lord, would we approach you not as beggars, but confidently that you're our father and we're your children. And a good father will always respond to the requests and the cries of their child. So we'll ask and you'll answer. We'll seek and you'll help us to find. We'll knock and you'll open the door.